We certainly have had a wonderful opportunity to prepare our hearts today to worship the Lord and to hear from his word. And so we're going to do just that. We're going to take a few minutes today and look at the word of God, which is the most important thing that we do here on a Sunday. We look at God's word. We see what it has to teach us and and tell us about our Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you today to turn to the book of John, chapter 6, as we continue through our study of John's gospel, and we are presented over and over and time and again with who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, and only in Jesus can we find eternal life, and only in living for Jesus can the Christian find uh, the satisfaction and the calling to which we are called, that is to live for the glory of God. And so in John chapter 6 today, we're going to continue where we left off last week. We, last week, we, we, we finished uh, looking at Jesus' miracle that he did in walking across the water there um, to meet his disciples. And we looked at the different things that, that he taught them in that, um, in that account. And so today, we're going to continue on and look at John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40 today and see the statement that Jesus makes about his, uh, that he is the bread of life. Can we consider this passage together today in in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 40? On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except for the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up. At the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life. And I will raise Him up at the last day. Father, we are so thankful 
that now we have just a, a few minutes here today set aside to look at your word. Lord, we pray that, that this would be a crucial point for us and not just in our day, but in our weeks and our lives that, that we would be still before your word. We would hear you speak through it today and that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to do his work in our heart. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see in Jesus the fulfillment of all things. He is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is our King. And Lord, I ask today that you would do your work in the hearts of all who are present. All who hear these, these words, this message today, you would speak. You would show us that in and of ourselves, we have no hope for eternity. But that is only found in you. And that in and of ourselves, we have no hope to live a life that pleases you, that comes only through you, your grace and your strength in our lives. And God, we pray that you would help us to hate sin more and love you more each day. That you would use your word in our hearts to change us, to mold us. Lord, I pray that you would help me to say those things only that would be helpful to that today. I mean, not to be a distraction from the work you want to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Here is a truth that will shock absolutely no one in this room. Are you ready? People love to eat. That should have gotten a few amens probably. Around the world, human beings have made food into an art. We cook, we bake, we grill, and we smoke just about anything, right? Some of you know that that I originally come from the South, and I have an ongoing thing about Chick-fil-A, okay? And some of you have given me great grief about that, and that's okay, all right? I love Chick-fil-A, and this week I was very disappointed to learn that they are going to be introducing cauliflower filet sandwiches on a limited test run, okay? For whatever reason, we feel that we can make that into a, a somewhat of a chicken sandwich, right? And some of you in this room undoubtedly had this conversation this morning before you left the house, and it began with that age-old question, hey, what are we doing today for Sunday lunch? And now, before the message even gets started, I've lost some of you because now all you can think about is, I'm really hungry, okay? Just hang in there for about a while, okay? And we'll, we'll get to it. God created us with a, a need for physical sustenance. And, and in something that can only be described as an expression of God's grace, God has made the experience of taking in that sustenance something that we can thoroughly enjoy in our lives. However, one thing about food is always true. No matter how much or how many times you eat, you will always need to eat again. We were made to take in nourishment, and we expect to need to take that nourishment in again after some time has passed. And in the passage before us today, Jesus takes us beyond the need of physical food to something far greater, that need that we have in our lives for spiritual food. And Jesus shows himself to be the only one who can quench the hungering and thirsting of our hearts and meet our spiritual needs. And he shows that he is the only one who can satiate that. And we need not return again. We need only to go to him to find these things. 
He is the bread of life. God's provision of eternal salvation and our only hope for the meeting of our eternal needs. And what we see here is that because eternal life is found only in Jesus, the bread of life, I must come to him for salvation and find my only joy in him in my sanctification. Jesus makes this statement here. And what you're going to see as we, as we work through this chapter, uh, we work through this passage today, this is, this is one of, a, of one of the critical points of Jesus' ministry. It's one of the critical points here in the book of John as this is going to become a turning point in Jesus' ministry. Uh, I mean, you talk about losing a lot of people with one sermon. This is exactly what Jesus is going to do here. As he expounds on this passage, uh, this statement Further on into the passage, you're going to see there are people who cannot stomach this truth that Jesus is the bread of life, that Jesus is the only way, and they're going to get stuck on some of the things he says, while others will stay and listen. And what also Jesus does here is he makes the first of seven what are called the I am statements of of John's gospel, where Jesus unfolds who he is and, and why he has come. And what you're going to see here is is what we said, that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the only hope for our eternal salvation, and he's our only joy in our sanctification. He is that which we pursue Christians with our lives, with the help of God. And so let's look at the passage today and see what John has to share with us about these things. In the first eight verses here, in verse 22 through 29, you, you see the insincere pursuit of the people who are there. Now, let me remind you that that at the beginning of John chapter 6, what you saw was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and what's commonly referred to today as the Golan Heights. You see Jesus, uh, all these people flocking and thronging to Jesus. And Jesus there performs a great sign, a great miracle, in that he feeds what what would be about fifteen to 20,000 people. We call that the feeding of the 5,000 because it was 5,000 men that were recorded there besides women and children. And then... Immediately following that, uh, the crowd attempted to crown Jesus king, to usurp the Roman authorities, because that's what they wanted their Messiah to do. And Jesus sends his disciples across to the western shore. And then he joins them in the midst of a storm, showing again his power to them. And so now, after that's happened, that was in the middle of the night that this storm happened and Jesus went across with his disciples. The next day, you see what happens in the people who are now searching for Jesus. It says in verse 22, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea, so that's on that eastern side of the sea, not in Capernaum where Jesus is, but over in the, that, that, that Golan Heights area, that that there was no other boat there except for the one which his disciples entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the day following Jesus walking on the water and giving his disciples further evidence of who he is, we see this searching for Jesus that takes place. It seems to be that that most of these people had had spent the night there in the area. Perhaps some of them had gone into some of the the, the towns that were were nearby, uh, or some had stayed out there on the hillside. And now they they came looking for Jesus, and we'll find out here in a few minutes as we look at the passage. They don't come looking for him, seeking him as a savior, but they're looking to him again because they had really enjoyed a nice meal the night before, and now they needed more, and they, they wanted to see his works. Jesus 
had left them, he had dispersed the crowd and ascended up there into the mountain to pray by himself while his disciples had gone away in the boat that had been present. And that's what you see there in verse 22. The people there remember that Jesus had not gotten into the boat to go with his disciples. He had gone up into the mountain, or, or, or maybe they didn't know exactly where he had gone. But now the boat is gone because the disciples got in and left, and Jesus is gone. And they don't have any explanation. They don't have any reason why, why he left or where he left or how he left because his disciples had left without him. Where did Jesus go? I mean, that is a mystery to them. And surely they, they had observed the storm that had happened the night before and, and wondered all the more. And so now verse 23 tells us that the people are, that are now on the eastern shore wish to leave this area and go over to Capernaum. So from the western side of the lake in what's the capital city of the area of the Galilean area of Tiberias, a flotilla arrives. You see there, it records that all of these, these boats from Tiberias come across to this place. Now, we don't know why the boats came. You know, perhaps some of them had friends and loved ones who were in the area and they came to retrieve them. Perhaps some of them um, had heard of what Jesus had done. The word has reached them, what Jesus had done the day before. And so now they want to come and see what Jesus is going to do again. Or perhaps even more of them, um, they hear about all the people who are over there. Now, and if you heard about all these people who are on one side of the, the lake and they need to get somewhere else, I mean, that's, that provides you a business opportunity, doesn't it? That you, maybe you can serve as some kind of water taxi to get people from one side of the lake to the others. And remember, the Passover is approaching, so many of these people are going to be making their way to Jerusalem anyway. They're going to need to go that direction. Whatever the case, what we see is that these boats pick up the people and bring them over to Capernaum, and it's here in Capernaum that the people redouble their efforts to locate Jesus. Now, Capernaum is the headquarters of Jesus' Galilean ministry. It's a centrally located city there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, so it's a natural place for them to start. And we see that they are rewarded for their search because it is here that they locate Jesus. And it's a natural question of curiosity that arises when they approach him and they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? Or maybe another way to say it is, how did you get here? They didn't see another boat. They didn't see him leave. They felt they saw the storm. How does Jesus get to Capernaum? I'll tell you one thing. They would never have thought to think that Jesus walked across the water to get there, which he did. And now Jesus begins to interact and discuss with these people the nature of who he is and what he will do and, and the need for their personal salvif- salvific faith in himself. But he does so by, by first um, going after the hearts of these people and, and convicting them of their selfish motives. Look in verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus is God, and as God, he knows the hearts of all men. And so he looks at these people, and he knows they do not truly believe in him, but instead, they long for another miracle to satiate their appetites and to tickle their messianic fantasies about him. And Jesus will not give them that. You notice he doesn't even answer the question that's asked, because that was not a sign for them. That was a sign for the disciples. That was not a question of relevance to what they needed in their lives. Instead, he continues to fulfill his mission that he was sent to earth to do, and that is to seek and to save the lost. 
And so therefore, he calls them to a deeper understanding of himself. He continues to reveal the truth of himself to them. But first, he must rebuke their shallow motives. Jesus says, you don't come to me because you saw the signs that I do, but, but because you ate and you want more. Something we have to understand is that miracles do not beget faith in our lives. The old saying is, seeing is believing. And that holds no water when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus pointed out the carnality of these people. He points out their hard-heartedness and their preoccupation with the physical desires. They did not seek Jesus because of the signs he did, but because they wished to be fed with additional free food. Again here, Jesus uses that word that John uses over and over again you, 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 when he uses the word here, signs. The idea is that, uh, that sign is, is, is an authenticating mark, showing who Jesus is. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you did not come to see me because you saw a sign of authentication, a mark that I am the Son of God. You came because you have a temporal need that you want me to meet. You came because you got your belly full yesterday and you want your belly to be full again today. You came to see something of wonder and amazement. You did not come to learn about who you are and who God is. Now, Jesus' works were done to meet needs, but they also served to confirm his words and claims. But the carnally-minded majority never seemed to see it for what it was intended to be. But you know what is an amazing expression of God's grace and love is that never hindered Jesus from continuing to show them himself. He continued to show compassion in these signs. But he also would not serve their sinful desires with these things. You know, it is true in our own lives that we are very easily blinded by our physical needs and God's provision for them, that so often we miss the greater spiritual work that God is trying to do in our hearts through these things. Instead, we reject the call of God in salvation or reject the, God, the call of God in our sanctification and service and instead we indulge ourselves in the gracious good gifts that God gives us. But God, in his great goodness, does not give up on us. He continues to work in our hearts and he continues to work in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He will indict these hard-hearted countrymen, but he will also reveal to him his gracious salvation. Look what he says in verses 27 through 29. We see the salvation's call that he gives to them. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus now moves in on the materialistic attitudes of these people. He calls for them to evaluate their efforts and their focus of of those efforts and to change those things. He says here, do not labor for the food that perishes. Now, this is not a call from Jesus to be lazy. This is not a call for people not to work. Instead, he is saying that they should shift the focus of their faith. They should shift the focus of their lives to those things which are eternal and from God. They were so consumed 
with the physical kingdom and the hopes of physical provision from Jesus that they had been willing, as we read a couple weeks ago, to force him to be their puppet king that they would parade in Jerusalem and seek to overthrow the Roman government. And Jesus said that instead of focusing on, on the physical, instead of focusing on what might be the, the physical fulfillment of their needs or the physical fulfillment of, of what they felt like the Messiah should be, they should instead be laboring and putting their efforts into the eternal. They needed to turn from that which fed only the outer temporal man and seek after that which nourished the inner eternal man. They needed to seek the food of eternal life which would come, Jesus says, from the Son of Man. Jesus says at the end of verse 27, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Notice here that that Jesus avoids the term, using the term Messiah or Christ. Now, that's not because Jesus isn't the Messiah and Jesus isn't the Christ, but because this crowd is a politically charged crowd. As we said a couple weeks ago, with the, with the Passover approaching, the nationalistic feelings are very high, and we saw what happened there. Jesus uses, again, the term that he so often uses for himself, the Son of Man, which is a reference to that prophecy that Daniel made of the one who would come and bring about the kingdom of God. Physical food sustains life, but the hunger will return. But Jesus instead promises to give eternal life to those who come to him. And that is a need that means only be met once. This comes from Jesus' authority and his equality with the Father. The Father, Jesus says, has set his seal of approval on Jesus as God the Son. And that seal of approval gives him the authority to dispense the gift of eternal life and to those who are lost in sin. But there is a recurring theme in John that we have seen several times, and we're going to see a couple times in our passage today. And the recurring theme is that there's a failure of listeners to grasp the spiritual meaning and the eternal realities of what Jesus is saying. And then we here again, we see the same. Because the, key, the people key in on this statement that they, are not, they should not labor for, for, for those things that are physical, but labor for those things that are spiritual, that are eternal, that are things of God. And did you notice what they said in verse 28? They said, they, they say here, um, what, uh, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now again, to understand this, perhaps we need to understand a little bit of the background of, of the, 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 the spiritual teachings in the nation of Israel because the religious leaders of Israel, especially the Pharisees, key in on the law of God is the way that you gain favor with God. That if you will do these things and you will follow these exactly and, and do this and do that and do all the traditions that are added on top of it, then you will, be, you will earn favor with God. And so to them, in their spiritual understanding, and their spiritual background, they hear Jesus say that we should labor for the things that are eternal and instead, we should, we should put a, quit laboring for the things that are physical. And so they say, well, what is it that we need to do? What is it we need to do to gain eternal life from God? But the law of God that was used to seek eternal life in their context is what should point us to, a, to look for God's mercy and grace and appeal to him. And this is an entirely... The, the, the response they have here is an entirely natural human response. Because in our lives, 
we feel the need to correct our wrongs. We love the thought of gaining our own way into eternity, into heaven. We want to say that we've done enough to balance our scales at the end of our lives. But Jesus says the answer isn't works, it's belief in him, the savior of mankind. This is exactly what Jesus calls for here. He says, this is the work of God. What? That you believe. And that word comes up over and over and over again throughout the book of John. That you believe in him. They were, uh, the only work here for them to do is to place their faith in him. And that they, were all, they are to believe in him as a son of God. The deliverer from sin. And then they will find their soul secure for eternity. And this is the the call of God, not only to those people who are there that day hearing Jesus speak, but to to all mankind throughout the ages. That the only way to eternity is through Jesus Christ. And God is calling to you and to me. He has reached out to us to show us our need for a Savior. And if you have not responded to him already, what is the response you will give to him? And Christian, he continues to call for you to follow him in faith not, not to, we'll talk about this in a minute, not to, to hold on to some type of, well, if I don't do this, that God's going to throw me out of the kingdom, but that we may serve him as he has called us to serve him. And so as Jesus, uh, we, we see the insincere pursuit of these people. Now Jesus continues uh, to, 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 to discuss these things with them. We see the audience respond to him with, a, with an incredulous request. And what we see here is the incomplete understanding that these people have about what is going on. In verses 30 and 31, there's a very really what I call a crude request here, because they just, again, they continue to show the, the spiritual blindness and ignorance of their hearts. Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the people have received the direct word of Jesus addressing their need. That they need to place complete faith and trust in him. They need to believe his word of salvation from sin. But they continue to have an appetite for miracles in their lives. And this is the truth. That a craving for miracles only produces a greater craving for miracles in our lives. Jesus claims to be the one sent from God in whom they are called to trust. And Jesus says, back here in verse 29, you need to believe in him whom he sent. And the understanding is here that Jesus is saying, I am that one. And so then what do they say in verse 30? Okay, prove it. That's, that's honestly what happens here. Where are your credentials? How do we know you're the one? And I would, I would argue that they look very foolish in asking this question. Why? Because what happened the day before? Jesus sat there with them the evening before. He had taught them about the kingdom. He had healed them. And then he fed fifteen to 20,000 people with five loaves, five little cakes, and two fish. What further proof do you need? But that's the point. Unbelief is never satisfied. 
Those who have hardened their hearts against believing in Jesus will never be satisfied until they are willing to believe the word of God. Jesus would further illustrate this in his ministry. Jesus would tell the story of two men. One is just referred to as a rich man, and the other is Lazarus, who is a poor man. And Lazarus trusted in God, Jesus says, and found salvation for his soul. The rich man did not believe in God, did not seek salvation in God, and upon death entered into hell to face eternal torment for his sin. And in this story that Jesus tells, Jesus then relays a request that the rich man makes for his family in Luke chapter 16, verses 27 through 31. Then he, that's the rich man, said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him, that's Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. The heart that is hardened against the word of God will not be convinced by the actions and signs of God. If you will not listen to what the Bible says, you will not find eternal rest and salvation for your soul. The Bible isn't a religious text. It isn't a life's manual on how to do good things or how to become a better person. It isn't a suggestion book, and it isn't for you to pick and choose what you like. It is God's revelation exposing your sin and drawing you to a Savior. The people do not want to believe, but instead once again demand that Jesus fit their mold of the Messiah. They call for him in verse 31 to perform signs, which according to them is exactly what Moses did. And you have to remember, again, in the Israelite mind, Moses is supreme. Moses is the one to whom they appeal. If we could say it, and again, I don't want to be sacrilegious or, or out of line, but if you could say it in a way, to them, Moses is basically God, right? The way they treat him. He was their deliverer from Egypt. He was the one who provided for them. They even have a seeming scripture reference to back up their call for proof. They say in verse 31, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In essence, they say, if you are the prophet like Moses, then prove it by doing works like Moses. The people under Moses had been carnal, self-focused, stiff-necked, and hard-hearted. Therefore, these people make such a crude, unbelieving request of Jesus. And yet Jesus will continue to show them the hope of salvation himself, beginning by correcting their thinking here. Look at the complete picture he gives in verse 32 and 33. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So it's interesting when you look at verse 31. 
Here's our text, right? Here's, here's our proof text of what Moses did. And now Jesus corrects their thinking. And, and we don't know exactly where that passage came from that people are quoting, but I'm going to give you a few options. One may have been Nehemiah 9.15. It says, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. Or Psalm 78, verses 23 through 25. Yet... He had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna on them to eat and given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. Or perhaps Psalm 105, verse 40, the people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven. And you know what you will find if you study each one of these passages? Do you know who the subject is who gives bread to the people in each one of those passages? It's God. It's not Moses. Many, a proof text has been offered for a lot of things with a passage taken out of context. The old saying is, a a, a text without context is pretext for a proof text. Try to say that five times fast. And that's exactly what's happened here. These people have gone back and they've ripped some passage out of context somewhere to say, look, this is what Moses did. And Jesus says, this is not what Moses did. This is what God did. The people claim Moses brought them an unending supply of food in the desert. The rabbis of their day taught the Messiah would duplicate such a miracle. And Jesus shows them that they must get their eyes off Moses and look to God. Now, Moses was God's man to lead Israel, but he was not the source of the people's provision. God is the source of this, as he is the source of all things. So thus, the first error that Jesus corrects here in in this incomplete understanding is this error of where the bread from heaven came from. But secondly, Jesus corrects the people in their understanding of what the true bread from heaven actually is. Jesus continues there. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Here's what he says, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. The physical manna that God gave the Israelites in the desert is not and was not the ultimate fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Instead, it was a temporary provision that would one day have an eternal antitype. Now, God did give physical bread to his people in the past, but now Jesus is saying, did you catch what he says here? In verse 32, I'm sorry, can we look back there again? He does not say that the the Father gave this, but he says what? My Father gives you. This is the present tense. Jesus is, is making a connection here. Yes, God did feed the people in the wilderness with the manna from the past, but there is a greater fulfillment that is present. Manna met a real physical need, but it foreshadowed something greater. Jesus says he is giving here true or genuine bread. That is what God is giving. The people are asking for something that is temporal when there is something far greater before them. Third, Jesus corrects this error of the people wanting only that which sustains them physically. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God, Jesus says, is the one who comes from heaven to give life. Now, that word 
here used for life is, the Greek, is a Greek word, uh, obviously, and it refers not to sustaining one's temporal body, but giving one that he needs to live for eternity. That's the context in which Jesus, in which Jesus uses it here. The people are asking for Jesus to give them something that will satiate them physically. Jesus says that God the Father has sent them the initiator of eternal life. And they're asking for something temporal. So Jesus is correcting them here that they should not only want that which sustains them physically, but they should long for that which sustains and gives them life for eternity. And lastly, Jesus corrects here a strictly Jewish focus of the people. The life that God is sending isn't just for Israel, but did you notice what Jesus said at the end of verse 34? Or verse 33, down from heaven that gives life to the world. The life of God is for the entire world. Regardless of one's ethnicity, Jesus came for all. That people from all tribes and tongues and nations would find eternal life through the true bread of God. And now, before we go to the last point of today's message, I want us to set the scene. I want us to understand where we are. I want you to see the climax for which we're about to hit and the the precipice upon which we stand for Jesus' revelation here. Because Jesus has authenticated his mission and message, performing an incredible sign of provision for 15 to 20,000 people. And then the people recognized him as the prophet like Moses and longed to make him king. They sought him out, seeking further physical provision, which Jesus refuses then to answer their questions about, but instead seeks to show them their spiritual need that is not found in work, but in belief. And then the people greedily request another sign. And so Jesus has now set up the message of salvation by setting it straight that God, not Moses, provided for Israel in the wilderness. And by revealing that God is sending them true bread from heaven to give life to the world. And that's all going to lead us. Okay, Jesus has set this up now. This is what God is doing that leads us to the incredible fulfillment found in Jesus. Before you get there, you have to kind of We have to descend a little bit back into the people's mindset in verse 34. In verse 34, the physical focus resurfaces yet again. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And here once again, the physical focus overrides the spiritual significance. And the request here that you hear from the people isn't all that different from what you read in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the woman at the well, and she wishes to not come draw water from the well anymore. And so when Jesus talks about the, 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 the well of water springing up and everlasting life, she says, Sir, can I please have this water? That I don't have to come here and draw from the well anymore. And then Jesus walked her through who he is. And so these people still desire some temporal need to be met. They say, well, that sounds really good. I mean, bread for eternal life, bread that that will keep us full. We want this physical fulfillment. You know, they are not unlike many a shallow, temporary, focused follower of Jesus today who still crowds into churches looking for some superficial need or to to be met or looking to satiate some selfish longing of their heart. And they use the word... Lord here in verse 34, and just so you know, uh, that's probably here perhaps translated, uh, better translated, sir, because this, this is not a title they're using to recognize Jesus as their Lord, but they're using it as a polite form of address towards Jesus. 
These people are ever so focused on filling their stomachs and have missed yet again the message of Jesus. And so now we come to this pointed, climactic declaration in verse 35. Okay, so everything we set up and we had to go back down, you know, to where the people are. Now look what Jesus says in verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And here, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, now fully reveals who he is in light of all that he has said. He is the bread that he promised to give in verse 27. He is the bread that God is giving, according to verse 33. He is the fulfillment of the manna given to the Israelites under Moses. And in Jesus, all spiritual needs are met. In him, no one will hunger or thirst spiritually. In Jesus, you lack nothing for your eternal salvation and your sanctification. And in Jesus, you will one day be glorified in heaven. In Jesus, all doubts and fears are removed. And in Jesus, you can stand before God in heaven clothed in true and eternal righteousness. And all you must do is come to Jesus and believe in who he is. That is the responsibility of man. That you and I must put away our own ambitions to gain eternity. You and I must forsake our sin. We must place our faith in Jesus alone, confessing our sin and seeking forgiveness in him. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's provision. The law given through Moses is fulfilled in him. He is the hope of eternal life. And in him salvation is full and complete. Do not miss this statement that Jesus makes because this is the crescendo of the whole thing. And now Jesus goes from here saying that he is the source of salvation. When Jesus says in verse 33, my father is giving the bread through him, he says, I am him. I'm the one. And then Jesus is going to take the next few verses as we close out our passage today and look at this picture and give us the full picture of full salvation in himself. Verse 36, but I said to you, That you have seen me and yet do not believe. Before Jesus gives the full scope of salvation, he delivers yet another stinging rebuke to those who are there. Because these ones who stand before him have had the incredible privilege, the incredible privilege of seeing him, the word incarnate, yet they do not believe. Yet again, I, I would argue with you that phrase, seeing is believing, does not hold water. Because they saw with their eyes, they beheld his glory, and yet they did not believe. And there is no excuse for unbelief in God. What you read over and over again in the scripture is that rejection of Jesus is sin. And it will lead you into eternal damnation should you pass from this earth having never believed in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. But just as sure as judgment comes upon those who reject Jesus, salvation comes to those who accept him. Continuing on, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. 
and I will raise him up at the last day. And here in Jesus' words, in this, in this passage, as we close this, this section out, you're going to see something here. That's what I call, I, 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 from time to time I use this phrase about things in the Scripture. This is a necessary tension in the Scripture. There's a necessary tension here in regards to our salvation. Because what you see here are two different things that Jesus talks about. There is the, the one side is God's omniscient sovereignty over all things. On the other side, you have man's free will and responsibility in the things of God. Here is a statement we cannot get around. God knows all who will come to him in faith through Jesus Christ. He is omniscient. He knows that. It is impossible for God not to know that. And because we are dead in our trespasses and sin, God must stir our hearts and show us our need of a Savior. However, we also must then respond in faith and come to Christ. And those who respond in faith, humbly admitting their sin and believing in Jesus and confessing him as Lord, are those who are given by the Father to Jesus, as Jesus says here. And God knows those who are, as is used in other passages in Scripture, the elect to receive salvation because he knows our responses to his conviction and drawing. God knows how you will respond to the message of salvation. However, that does not take away your personal responsibility in that response. Over the years, there have been many attempts made to reconcile this in our finite brains. I just want to summarize two very quick sides of the, of the, of the argument here. One, on the one hand, you have those who overemphasize the free will of man. In that line of thinking, you and I, we're responsible for our own salvation. We're the ones who come to God. We're the ones who, who make the choice. We're the ones who basically, if you boil it all down to it, are the ones who save ourselves. And so it's very easy to see why then you can say, well, I was saved. I'm not saved because it's all about me. And that's an impossible thing because as you read in the scriptures, you ignore key facts that we are dead in our trespasses and sins and ignores the passage on God's election. Now, on the other side, you have those who overemphasize the sovereignty of God in these things. You say, now, wait a minute. Is it possible to overemphasize the sovereignty of God? Hear me out, okay? Here, God is the sole enactor, and his irresistible grace leaves me no choice but to accept him because that is his will for my life. But this ignores the clear teaching of Scripture that we are responsible to make a choice To believe in God, which John drives the point home time after time after time. You must believe in God. God is the one who must draw us. He must do his work in our hearts. But we are responsible for our response to him. So do you see where I'm talking about? It leaves a necessary tension in these things. That there's a work that that God has to do in my life. There's a work that God has to do to convict me of my sin, to show me my need of a Savior. But then there is a choice I must make how I respond to the work that God is doing. And from a human standpoint, can we just admit something today? From a human standpoint, whether you're on one side or the other, it's easier to be an extreme, right? And here's why it's easier to be an extreme. Because then God fits in my box, 
If it's all about me, then I get it. I can understand it. Hey, it's all about what I do. If it's all about God, I get it. I understand it. He fits inside my box. You're never going to cram an infinite God inside your finite little box. And that's what makes God so amazing. If you and I have a God we can understand, we don't have God. We make ourselves God. And so... We rest in God's wisdom, knowing his sovereign election and our free will responsibility exists perfectly together. Some of you have heard of the great preacher of the past, Charles Spurgeon, and he was asked by a church member how he reconciled divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and this is what Charles Spurgeon said to that church member, I never try to reconcile friends. They work in concert together as God has set forth. They are ordained by God to work together, and so they do. And since God the Father has given all those who trust in Jesus to the Son, we see something else here. That salvation is secure for eternity. Jesus says he has come to do the will of the Father in saving mankind. Therefore, no one who comes to him will be lost. God's sovereignty extends to the security of salvation to every believer. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are secure in God alone. The scriptures Nowhere speak of losing our salvation. They speak of those who were never saved to begin with, or those that reveal it by the way they live their lives. But they do not speak of it being possible for one to be rest away from the hand of God. All believers are secure for all eternity. And what a wonderful and comforting thought that is, because I don't know about you, but I still struggle with some. And in my sin, I have felt unworthy of so great salvation that God has given. And if it were up to me to keep my salvation, I would never be able to do it because I am inadequate. Therefore, I am most grateful for the good and gracious hand of God who loves and forgives, keeping me in himself. Now, my sin will hinder my relationship with God, but it will not terminate it. Salvation however, is not a license to sin. And if you sit here today and you view salvation, well, I got what I needed, so now I can go do what I want, my friend, you never have understood what salvation is. Salvation isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's, it is proclamation of who is the Lord of your life. But it is also not instantaneous perfection, and we wish it was. It is regeneration and the beginning of a new life that leads to further sanctification every day as you submit yourself to the Lord of your life. And the will of God for all who believe in Jesus is eternal life and coming resurrection. You notice Jesus mentions this twice in these statements that they will be raised up at the last day. One day, God will raise all those who have trusted in Jesus and what a glorious and wonderful day that will be. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the giver and sustainer of eternal life. He is our hope and our joy, so let us live for him today. 
Let us see that because eternal life is found only in Jesus, the bread of life, I must come to him for salvation and find my only joy in him in my sanctification. Jesus continued to reveal himself to all who came to him during his ministry. And this demand for a personal response would indeed garner one. We'll see that in the coming weeks, the choices that people will make concerning him and his message of salvation. But today, Jesus calls for your response. He is the source and sustainer of true life. And I think we fail if we don't ask the question, have you placed your complete trust in him alone? That faith requires you to renounce your sin, to relinquish your efforts of self-righteousness, and to humbly depend on him alone. And his invitation is open to you today. Will you receive him? And if you have accepted him, you are called to be his disciple. In God, your eternity is secure. You are now free to serve his kingdom. But sadly, so many Christians enjoy so little victory in their lives over sin because they satisfy themselves with such a shallow relationship with God. And my friend, if you satisfy yourself with some shallow relationship with God, a relationship that doesn't really want to know God, you just want the benefits that come from knowing about God, then you will never live a victorious Christian life. And your, your, your entire life will reflect that. You will feel no peace in your heart. You will feel no, no peace with God, no peace with others. Your relationships will suffer. Things in your life, you will say, I, I don't understand. How do I? Because we need God. We need to trust him. We need to follow him. We need to submit our lives to him. You and I cannot enjoy God if we do not walk with him and seek him. Disciples are called to live for the kingdom. The victory of God over sin can be enjoyed by all who accept Jesus and walk in his ways with his help. So I would encourage you to embrace and follow the bread of life, giving thanks to him for his great salvation. Father, we thank you again for the great power of your word in our lives. Lord, even as we have taken time today to look at these things, we are awed and amazed at your power. We are amazed at the declaration, the power behind the declaration of Jesus today, that he is the bread of life. He is our source of eternal life. He is the sustainer of these things. He is worthy of our trust. God, I pray today that you would have the freedom to continue to work in our hearts to draw us even further, closer into yourself that you would convict hearts of sin, and that we would reflect more of Jesus each day. We ask that you would bring us back here tonight to worship you together. In your name we pray.